following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from Life Point Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. We can turn your Bibles to Romans 9, and we're going to finish out the chapter today by looking at verses 24 to 33. The Scriptures say there, even us whom he has called, not from among the Gent or not from among Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. As he says also in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people my people, and those who were not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of a sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute His word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of Seboeth had left to us a posterity, we would have become like Sodom and would have have resembled Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness? even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. Just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. One of the biggest mistakes that we can make uh, theologically uh, is is that very often we we want to put human boundaries on God. Now, now God does have boundaries. We've talked about this a couple times recently, that God is bound by His righteousness. He can't just do anything. And and, and other things, like, like the fact that God is always logical. He's never unreasonable. So, you've probably all heard the question, can God make a stone so large that he can't pick it up? Well, the answer is no, because that's a stupid question, all right? It's nonsensical. And, um, and so, God does have boundaries, but God is not bound by our boundaries, by our logic, and by what makes sense to us. But that doesn't stop us from trying to Bring God to a level that we can understand. So, for example, you know, if you ever talk to a Muslim about Christ, one of the things that they love to push on is the idea of the Trinity. And so, they're going to say that there's no way that, that one God could consist of three persons because that doesn't make sense. So, it can't be true. And uh, I can't comprehend the Trinity either. But the Bible is very clear that there is one God... It's also clear that there are three persons in the Godhead. And so I believe it, even though I can't fully understand it. I accept it by faith. And of course, another a theological complexity that we really struggle to, re- to understand is the relationship between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Now, how can God be in absolute control of everything that takes place? How can the future be so certain that God knows every detail of what's going to happen 
perfectly. And yet, we are free creatures who make our own choices. That's really hard to understand. And therefore, you know, we, we want to make it simple. So, so some people are going to deny the reality of divine sovereignty. And they're going to say that God doesn't control what we do. And, and, and we sometimes might surprise God. And so I'm in charge of my life. And to some extent, God is reacting to me. Or we could go the other way and say that basically we're all puppets. And God is just the puppeteer up in heaven moving his hand around. And, and we just he's pulling the strings and we mindlessly follow. Now, now if you go either way. In some sense, it's more comfortable because you can grasp it. But both of those things deny Scripture. And for example, we've, we've seen the last few weeks in our way, or working our way through Romans chapter 9, that God is in control. He is sovereign. And the first part of our passage today continues to emphasize that theme. But that doesn't mean that, that we are just puppets in the hand of God. No. Uh, Chapter 9, verse 30, really extending through the end of chapter 10, is going to argue that our choices are very important. And that our choices bear eternal consequence. So today, in our passage, we're going to cross the bridge, you could say, from divine sovereignty to human responsibility. We can't quite understand how they fit together. But we have to embrace both. So, So our passage includes two pretty distinct sections. So first of all, verses 24 through 29 teach that God will accomplish His sovereign purpose. God is in control. Now now to appreciate why Paul is talking about this, remember that the main concern of Romans 9 is to prove the assertion in verse 6 that God's Word has not failed. Now, now why is Paul worried about God's Word not failing? Well, remember that specifically, the Jews assumed that their physical relationship to Abraham all but guaranteed their salvation. However, by the time Paul wrote Romans, you know, three three decades or so after Jesus died and rose again, it was becoming pretty clear that most of the Jews were not going to accept Jesus as their Savior. So had God's promise to the Jews failed? Or was Paul's gospel unfaithful and inconsistent with the Old Testament? And and what we've seen is that Paul responds by, by going to several Old Testament proofs to demonstrate that God was never obligated to save every descendant of Abraham. No one has the right to to demand God's mercy. No, God has the right to, to either extend mercy or withhold mercy based on His sovereign will. So, we saw last week in verses 19 through 23 that God makes some vessels for destruction and He makes other vessels for mercy. But but the Jew, he wants to know why, why so many Jews were turning out to be vessels of wrath and, and why instead so many Gentiles were the vessels of mercy. Now, why, as verse 24 says, is God not just calling people from among the Jews, but also calling people from among the Gentiles? 
And, uh, and Paul's really going to develop that, uh, the, the Gentile theme a lot more as we move forward through, through chapters 10 and 11. But, but here, at the end of the chapter, of chapter 9, he, he gives both a divine reason, why that's the case, and a human reason. So the divine reason, again, is there in verses 25 through 29. And, and he makes his point by citing two Old Testament prophets, Hosea and Isaiah. And so first... Hosea demonstrates God's freedom to save Gentiles. God's freedom to save Gentiles. So so look again at what he says in verses 25 and 26. It says, and he he says also in Hosea, I will call those who are not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Now, this is kind of a a tricky quotation to understand because it's obvious when you read through the book of Hosea that that Hosea is talking about the ten northern tribes of Israel. So, uh, these ten northern tribes, uh, by the time Hosea lived, they had been in rebellion against God for, for a couple of centuries, really ever since the death of Solomon. And now the time has come where God is about to abandon them to the Assyrian destruction. The Assyrian nation is going to come in. They're going to wipe out the northern kingdom and carry the people into captivity. But thankfully, God encourages Israel in the book of Hosea that that's not the end of the story. No, chapter 2, verse 23 promises that I will sow her, speaking of these ten northern tribes, for myself in the land. I will have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion, And I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. That's a wonderful promise. God tells these tribes, you have sinned against me, but but I am not going to abandon you forever. I'm going to abandon you for a time. You are not going to be my people. But then, I'm going to call you to myself. And you will become my people once again. And it's a great promise, but when we come to our passage, the challenge is, is that Paul seems to ignore the fact that, that it was originally given to Israel, and he, he pretty clearly here seems to be applying it to the Gentiles. He's not really talking about Jews in verses 25 and 26. He's talking about Gentiles. So, so what's he doing here? Is he just you know, yanking it out and misusing it, or, or what exactly is going on? Well, well a lot of people... I want to believe that what's happening here is that Paul is taking a promise that God originally gave to Israel, and and he is transferring it to the Gentiles. So God never actually intended to to restore the Jews. He's just going to save a whole bunch of Gentiles. But of course, the problem with that is that seems kind of disingenuous. And frankly, it wouldn't be very encouraging to a Jew in, in Hosea's day to Say, well, you're all going to go off in destruction, but someday God's going to save a bunch of Gentiles. That, that wouldn't really bring a whole lot of comfort to the people of Hosea's day. That'd be sort of a bait and switch kind of thing. So, so the promise must be for Israel. And I believe that God's going to keep that someday. Someday, God is going to call the Israelites to himself in the complete sense and, and save them. And we're going to talk about that again a lot in chapter 11. But, but Paul here, I think what's going on is he recognizes an underlying principle that is very significant for his argument. 
It's the same principle he talked about with Isaac and Jacob and with Israel in the wilderness. And the principle is that God's saving purpose is not based on human work. No one deserves mercy from God. No one. And no one can demand it. You know, so in Hosea's day, you have these ten northern tribes. They're rebelling against God. They've rebelled for centuries, and God abandons them to judgment. And He's not obligated to ever show them mercy again. But God says that mercifully, He will call those who were not My people, My people. And similarly, throughout the Old Testament, the Gentile nations had also rebelled against God and deserved judgment. You know, I mean, you look across world history, pre-Christ, it's not like all these nations out there are seeking God. I mean, they they are engaged in all sorts of violence and evil and wicked without any desire for God at all. But God isn't bound to judge. He is free to call those who were not His people, His people. He is free to make them sons of the living God. And that's what God's been doing among the Gentiles now for roughly 2,000 years. He has been calling Gentiles all over the planet out of darkness and into a glorious relationship with Himself. And of course, most of us are are the direct beneficiaries and and we are the evidence of that work. Some of you got saved from You grew up in families where there's a long legacy of godliness and and desire for the Lord. Others in here were saved out of the darkest situations. But it's good for us to remember often that no one in here has a natural right to the mercy of God. You were once far from Him and walking in sin, but God called you to Himself. You were not His people And He made you His people. He chose mercy for you. And so, be humbled by that. Give thanks. Worship the Lord for the incredible mercy that is yours. And I think as well, when we look at a verse like this, that that it also ought to challenge us to get busy participating in God's purpose of of, of sharing the gospel and reaching the nations for Christ. You know, because God has people that He is calling to Himself. And, 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 and so we just need to bring the gospel to them. There is no one beyond the reach of God's grace. God can grab a hold of anyone and bring them to Himself. So, so we should be zealous for the cause of world evangelism. We should not be intimidated by any religion, government, or anything like that. But we should believe that God is and will save people everywhere. Of course, as well, God can save people in unexpected places, even right here in Apple Valley. You know, there is no one in our community that is beyond the reach of the gospel. So, so talk to them about Christ. You know, ask a question. Give them a tract. Invite them to church or some church event. But believe that, that if we go after people with, for the sake of the gospel, that God will work and God will save people. So so the point that Paul is making here is that God has freedom to save Gentiles. But he's going to also make the point here that God has not abandoned Israel. Now, that might not seem super significant to us, 
But of course, it does hit at the very nature of who our God is, his faithfulness and his goodness. And so we need to understand what he's saying here. So, so verses 27 through 29 then declare God's freedom to preserve a Jewish remnant. Now, now, now these verses uh, quote two passages from the book of Isaiah. And so first, verses 27 and 28 say, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. So he's quoting there from Isaiah 10, uh, verses 22 and 23. And like Hosea, Isaiah, those are really confused, Hosea, Isaiah. Isaiah is, is also concerned with the Assyrian destruction of the northern kingdom. They're, they're roughly contemporaries. And, um, and, and when you look through the Bible story, and when you, you could look at secular accounts too of what the Assyrians would do when they went into, a, went into a, a, a nation and destroyed them, the Assyrian destruction was ruthless and it was absolutely devastating. And by the time the Assyrians had, had gone through the northern kingdom, I mean, it would have been hard to imagine how there could ever be any sort of restoration of Israel based on what the Assyrians had done. And it's important to emphasize again that Israel did not deserve one. And again, I mean, they had been in rebellion against God for a long, long time, basically since Solomon had died. And God, and God didn't promise that He would bring every Israelite home. But He did promise that he would preserve a remnant. And that's exactly what he did about 200 years after Isaiah's time. The book of Ezra describes how how tens of thousands of Jews came home and reestablished their nation and their identity. And it was an incredible display of God's faithfulness and mercy. Something that no one would have expected. But while it was an incredible demonstration of mercy, verse 27 says that only a remnant returned. Only a remnant. They were only a fraction of what Israel had once been. I mean, think about what Israel was in the time of David and Solomon. You know, the, the, the Israelite nation of Ezra and Nehemiah is, is nowhere near as big. But God did preserve a, rem, a remnant. And that's significant because it once again demonstrates that God was not obligated to save every Israelite. Whether physically in the time of, of, of Ezra and Nehemiah, or spiritually in Paul's day. And so no one should have been shocked that, that every Jew was not accepting Jesus as Savior because God had a long track record of only preserving a remnant. But He did preserve a remnant. And rather than viewing that as a disappointment, You know, Paul's saying we ought to see it as a great demonstration of his mercy. And Paul drives that home with his second quotation in verse 29. It says, And just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of Seboeth had left to us a posterity, we would have become like Sodom, and we would have resembled Gomorrah. Now, now this quotation comes from Isaiah 1 verse 9, and, and this one would have been really hard for the Jews to stomach. You know, because if you're a Jew, who are the last people on earth that you would want to be compared to? Well, it's Sodom and Gomorrah, right? I mean, they are like the epitome of evil, 
perversion and wickedness. And God says that they deserved the same fate as Sodom and Gomorrah. That's really hard for a Jew to hear. And yet it was true. I mean, by Isaiah's time, their sin was so great for so long that they deserved complete destruction. You know, and, and that's, I think that's just, that's good perspective for all of us, right? Be- because we all tend to start to think that God owes me this. I've done so much for Him. He ought to do so much for me. And that is never the case. That is never the case. So, so why didn't Israel receive that complete destruction? No, is it because God saw some seed of value in them that compelled Him to forgive? You know, was it that they made this great emotional display of repentance? Did, did they choose God and forsake their sin in such a way that, that they changed God's mind? No. The only reason they received mercy was because God freely extended it. I mean, verse 29 says that, that, that unless God had made this choice, they would have been utterly destroyed. It was God's mercy that saved. So, so verses 24 through 29 demonstrate that what was happening in Paul's day fit the pattern of God's work throughout Israel's history. I mean, God has never been indebted to any people. And, and that's really important for us as well to appreciate. You know, God is not indebted to Kit. He's not indebted to you. He, he doesn't owe us anything. When He shows mercy, it's not because we deserve it. It's not because we talk Him into it. It's free mercy based on God's purpose. So, so if He is more glorified, by only preserving a Jewish remnant and extending mercy to the Gentiles, as was happening, he is free to do that. Now, now I recognize, again, as we talked about last week, that, that can be hard to stomach because, because we want to be in control, right? And we all want to take just a little bit of credit for where we are spiritually. But God says we can't. We are debtors, complete debtors to the mercy of God. I think that's one reason why, why I encourage us occasionally that, that you ought to rehearse the gospel daily. Because we all tend to get a little too big for our britches, right? We start to think I'm a pretty good guy. I've got stuff together. God ought to be really thankful that he's got me. And, and, and without even trying, without even trying, just, just the natural pride of life that's in our hearts, we start to grow entitled have a sense that God owes us something, we get legalistic. I'm better than this guy over here. We can grow bitter at God when we don't think He's doing us right. And all sorts of other sins come about. And so we need the daily corrective of the gospel. You don't don't need to spend every day of your life telling yourself how good you are. You need to spend every day of your life remembering how sinful and broken you are, but how much mercy God has displayed to you. So so don't ever stray far from the fact that He is the potter, you're the clay, and His mercy is the foundation of everything. 
And I also want to emphasize, again, that, that these verses should provide strong encouragement to go share the gospel. Because God has the power and, and every right to call people who were not His people, His people. He can save anyone. Anyone. So, so don't ever think that, that whoever it is in your life that, that you just think, you know, there's no point in even bringing up Christ. Don't think that. Because God loves to show mercy in unexpected ways. And He is not an unwilling Savior. So, so if there's someone in your life that you just kind of close the door to the idea that they will ever be saved. And obviously, you know, you know, the application then is not that you have to like go through the Romans road every time you see them. Because at some point, that just gets irritating and obnoxious. But, but don't ever close the door to the idea that God could save this person. Don't give up on trying to reach them for Christ. Because God is able to save. And if, and if you're not saved, you know, then, then, then you need to come to Christ too. God can change your life. He can change anyone. So share the gospel with confidence that God is going to save sinners. Start a conversation. Ask a question. Give someone a track. Invite them to church. Expect God to work. So, so verses 24 through 29 tell us that God is sovereign over the salvation of sinners. And He will accomplish His will. But does that mean that we're all just puppets in God's hand? Should we just kind of sit back and say, well, God can do what He's going to do, so I don't need to share the gospel. I, I can just kind of take it easy and God's going to do what He's going to do and I don't have any impact on that. If you're not saved, should you just sit there and wait for God to zap you with faith and repentance? Does, does God's sovereignty eliminate human responsibility? Well, the rest of this chapter says absolutely not. No, instead, verses 30-33 through 33 say that we must believe the gospel. You are responsible and verses 30 through 33 make this point by, by contrasting again the Jews and the Gentiles. And, and what is striking again is, is this sudden shift from God's sovereign right as the potter to the impact of human choice. And so, first, verse 30 says that the Gentiles believed. The Gentile, why are so many Gentiles getting saved? Well, Paul says. Because they believe the gospel. Look at what he says in verse 30. He says, what shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith? Now, when we read this, we have to remember that there never was a time where the majority of Gentiles were saved, right? I mean, throughout history, the church has always been a small minority, but... By the time Paul wrote the book of Romans, again, you know, 20, 30 years after Christ, the church had already become majority Gentile. And it has only become increasingly majority Gentile. And why is that? Well, Paul says the simple difference is faith. Far more Gentiles are believing the gospel than Jews. Now, for us, roughly 2,000 years later, we're used to that. You know, I, I've not known very many Jewish Christians in my life. But for the Jewish Christians of Paul's day, that was absolutely shocking. 
And that's because verse 31 says you know, that, that for roughly 1,500 years by the time Paul wrote, the Jews had been pursuing a law of righteousness, he says. But as verse 30 says, during that same period, the Gentiles were not pursuing righteousness. Now, now Paul doesn't mean by that, that that no Gentile people had ever tried to form any sort of righteousness. I mean, you could look at all sorts of world religions and, and moral codes and things of that nature and see plenty of people all over the world trying to establish righteousness apart from an understanding of God. No, no, the point is, is that in the ages before Christ, very few Gentiles ever cared to, to somehow earn a relationship with the God of the Bible. They didn't even acknowledge He existed. They, they weren't trying to worship Him. They, they weren't trying to keep His law. They, they weren't trying to gain His favor. They're not searching after Him. They want nothing to do with Him. So, so think about, you know, if you're Paul, you know, and think about Paul before Christ. There's the Jews. We love God. We serve God. And then there's all the pagan peoples of the world who want nothing to do with God. Now, if you're, if you're in Paul's shoes, you get saved. Who do you think is going to respond to the gospel? Well, all the Jews. Not those Gentiles out there. But then the exact opposite was taking place. And how in the world did that happen? Well, when the God, I mean, but it did. I mean, when the gospel began to spread among the Gentiles, you know, Paul and others began taking the gospel. I mean, just think even, you know, the first time the gospel goes up to Antioch, and I mean, the, the Christians in Jerusalem, they're shocked at this overwhelming response by Gentiles to the gospel. They hear the gospel for the first time. They believe that Jesus is the Christ. They repent of their sins and they get saved. And and verse 30 says, they attained righteousness. Now, now I do need to be clear that that doesn't mean, as we've talked about many times in our study, that that they earned a righteous standing with God. Right? Because because Romans 1 through 3 were very clear that, that no one can achieve righteousness with God. That His standard for us is impossibly high. No, no, the righteousness that they, they attained was a righteousness that came to them, he says, by faith. And, and that is God's righteousness, which is credited to us. And look at, look at how Paul describes what it means to believe and be saved in chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. He says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. So so Paul says there that that you don't earn a right standing with God. You you just simply confess that, that Jesus is the only Lord and Savior. And you trust in what he did on the cross. And when you do that, you're saved meaning that you are saved from God's judgment that you deserve. And so if you don't have that assurance, if you've never received Christ as your Savior, then then receive Him. I mean, do what verses 9 and 10 say. You can sit there right there in your seat and confess, Jesus, you are the Lord. I've sinned against you. You are the Savior. 
I believe on you, and God says you will be saved. And I love the fact that our text assumes that you don't need any other qualification. Any other qualification. I think so often when people hear the gospel, they think, yeah, but, but I've, you don't know all the other stuff in my life, all the things I've done, all the things that are wrong. You know, but, but looking back at verse 30, I mean, the Gentiles, they, you know, the people that Paul's talking about, they didn't have any sort of godly heritage. And they didn't have any sort of qualification. You know, they weren't even looking for salvation. But then some guy showed up in town and preached the gospel, and they heard it, and they said, that's true. Jesus is Lord and Savior. They received Him, and they were saved. And you can do that too. And God will change your life. So so the gospel is powerful. And, And Paul is saying here that it works in surprising ways. You know, some of you are surprises, right? Someone would have met you 5, 10, 20 years ago. They would have never expected what God has done in your life. I mean, you are a surprising story of God's grace. Praise God for that. And, and if you think there's no way God could save me, God can. And, and Christian, if you think there's this person out there, there's no way that they could ever be saved. Don't put limits on what God can do. Share the gospel with everyone believing that God can save. Now, now that's great news, right? I mean, verse 30 is awesome news of what God was doing in Paul's day and continues to do in Gentile places all over the world. But unfortunately, everyone does not respond the same way. Paul goes on to say that while the Gentiles believed, the Jews stumbled. And that was a stunning, crushing development for Jewish Christians like Paul. Paul said in chapter 9, verse 3, that if he could give his soul for the salvation of the Jews, if he could endure eternal judgment in hell and, and save the Jewish nation, he would do it. But he couldn't. And most of his Jewish brethren were headed to destruction. So what happened? I mean, why did so many Jews reject Jesus? Well, Paul offers two reasons. And the first reason is, is that they misused the law. They misused the law. Look at verses 31 and 32. He says, But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. I think probably the best way for us to to just think through this is to look at a story of someone like this. So, So keep your finger here and turn back to Luke 18. Luke 18. And this is a very familiar story. It's a story that we we commonly call the story of the rich young ruler. And and so this young man, uh, he comes to Jesus, Luke chapter 18, and he asks Jesus a really important question. So Luke 18 verse 18 says, a ruler questioned him saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So so he's asking the right question, right? This guy is pursuing righteousness. He wants to be right with God. He wants to go to heaven someday. 
And so, so as verse 30 says, he, he, I mean, he is, he's the guy pursuing righteousness. And he thought that he had achieved righteousness. Because when Jesus brings up several of the Ten Commandments, well, let's read verses 20 and 21. It says, Jesus responds and says, You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these things I have kept from my youth. So so Jesus brings up several of the Ten Commandments, and, and this guy says, Yeah, I have done all. All those things. Now, of course, I'm sure he would have admitted that he hadn't kept them perfectly, but, but compared to most people in the world, I mean, he thinks he has done really well. I mean, he has looked at the law, he's looked at the, the, the Ten Commandments, and he has said, I can do that. And I can do that good enough that I can earn a place with God in heaven someday. And then Jesus, though, says that he hadn't done enough. He demands more. I mean, look at what is said in verses 22 and 23. It says, When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus here does an incredible job because this man, of uh, pointing out this man's issue, because this man was satisfied with the righteousness that he had achieved. And frankly, he is offended that Jesus would ask for more. I mean, how can you possibly ask for more? And, but, but, it's, but Jesus says that, that, buddy, as far as you have come, you still fall short. Because the two great commandments are love God with all your heart and love your neighbors yourself. But when Jesus challenged this guy about do you love your money or God and neighbor more, this guy loved his money more than he loved God and more than he loved his neighbor. And what Jesus is doing here is he's not challenging this guy to earn heaven by selling everything he has and following Jesus. He's pointing out this man's priorities. priorities. So, so even this very impressive religious man, he, he tried to attain righteousness through the law but he did not arrive at it. He was still a sinner. And what did the young man miss? Well, well, verse 32 of our text answers that he did not pursue the law by faith, but as though it were by works. So so in other words, he, he saw the law of Moses as his way to achieve salvation. If I do this, I will live. And he tried to do it. He convinced himself that he could. And then, of course, he conveniently ignored all the ways that he fell short. But Paul says he missed the point. God intended that Israel pursue the law by faith. So, in other words, the law was designed to reveal Israel's sin. To show them that they did fall short. Not to convince them that they were righteous. And then from there, to receive God by faith. And so they were not to obey the law to earn God's acceptance, but because they already had it. But what Paul is pointing out in her text is that sadly, their pride drove them to abuse the law and to become hardened in their self-righteousness. 
And sadly, Satan has used that strategy time after time after time to keep people from believing the gospel. Now, there are millions of people in our country who would be offended that you would think that they are not going to heaven because they have a Christian identity. I remember my, my neighbor in Michigan, I had a wonderful neighbor in Michigan, did all sorts of things to help me out. Never went to church. But, but in the moment I would try to bring up anything with Christianity, he's like, I mean, how? I mean, he was, he was dumbfounded that I would question his faith because, because he was a Lutheran. And there's so many people like that. That, that, that we, they are convinced because of all that they do and all the things that, that are in their life that, that surely God accepts them. But their confidence in their righteousness keeps them from seeing their desperate need for grace. So, so don't make that same mistake. No, no matter how righteous you may perceive yourself to be, you will never measure up to the righteousness of God. As Jesus pointed out to the rich young ruler, you fall terribly short of loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself. You need grace. And grace is available in Jesus. So come to Him and be saved. So so the Jews stumbled because they misused the law and then as well they stumbled because they missed their Messiah. They misused the law, and they missed their Messiah. So so look at the rest of the chapter. Beginning there in the middle of verse 32, it says, They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Now now notice here that, that he's talking about a stumbling stone, and that stumbling stone is the person of Christ. So, so verse 33 says that he is a person. And, and he says that this person is a Savior. Now that's surprising though, right? I mean, how would Jesus, right, the Son of God, be a stumbling stone? Well, the reason is, is that for the Jews at least, Jesus did not fit what the self-righteous Jews were looking for. You know, so, so they weren't looking for a lamb. They weren't looking for a sacrifice. Because they thought they were righteous. They don't need, they're giving, doing all the sacrifices. They're obeying the law. They don't need someone to come and save them from their sin. They need someone to save them from the Romans. They needed a king. Not a humble Savior on a cross. And so they stumbled over Jesus' humility. And over the fact that He came to save them from their sins. And over the fact And so they refused to believe they had those needs. So so what was to blame for the Jews' rejection of Jesus? Now Paul says that it wasn't God's fault that all these Jews were not getting saved. It was the Jews' fault. They were the ones who refused to humble themselves before Christ and believe. And so why will they be condemned to hell? It's because they refused to believe the gospel. And that's really important to remember when someone rejects the gospel. Because you know, so often when someone we love rejects the gospel, we, we want to get angry at God. Right? Why doesn't God 
save this person. And instead, we should be frustrated at the sinner. Because the sinner is the one who is rejecting God's invitation. The sinner is the one who refuses to humble himself before the Lord. The sinner is the one who has earned his condemnation. So so keep pleading with them to receive Christ. Because as long as they're here, there's still time. And God can save them. So, So let them know as the chapter concludes that if they believe on Christ, they will not be disappointed. Christ is worth it. And that's what I'd say to anyone here who is on the fence. Maybe maybe you understand the gospel. You get what it's saying. But for whatever reason, you're just not ready to receive Christ. Well, humble yourself before Him. Don't stumble over the stumbling stone. Humble yourself. And rather than stumbling over Christ, make Him the cornerstone of your life. Trust in Him to save. Receive Him as Lord and Savior. Because God says to you at the end of this passage, you will not be disappointed. You will not be disappointed. God is full of mercy. Let's pray. God, thank You for this chapter and thank You for this passage. Thank You for the reminder of Your mercy and grace. And uh, thank You for your power to save. And Lord, we we thank You that You are able. And so God, help us to trust You. Help us to rely on You. And oh God, I pray that we would would have confidence to go out and share the Gospel. uh, To believe in Your power to transform lives. Help us to plead with sinners to be born again. Lord, I pray for any here who have not yet received Christ Oh Lord, please, please work in their hearts. Humble them. Bring them to faith and repentance, we pray. And Lord, help us this week to be diligent in sharing the gospel and letting others know that they can be saved if they believe on Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.